Galatians chapter 5 today. Galatians chapter 5 if you want to turn there with us. Have you guys ever heard the old saying that old married couples begin to look alike? You guys ever heard that? Okay, it's, it's actually a true thing. I've, I've started to notice that, that when people are married for a long time, they start to kind of look alike. And, and you wonder, Brian, that can't be true. There's, there's no way that I marry someone and I start to look like them. Well, listen to this. In the 1980s, Robert Zions, a, a doctor of psychology at the University of Michigan, he decided he was going to see if people really did look like their spouses. And so here's what he did. He designed an experiment to see if people changed their looks. He took pictures of couples from their wedding day or right around their wedding day and he split the picture of the couple in half and he blacked out everything except for their faces and then he took pictures from the exact same couples at, the, at, at or around their 25th year anniversary and he did the exact same thing. He split the picture of the couple and blacked out everything but their faces and then he had volunteers come in and he didn't tell them what they were doing. He said, I need you to come in and I need you to match pictures of people that you think look alike among those younger couples and among those older couples. All the couples were the same age. They were from the same area. They were the same race and the same basic build and said, would you do that? Now, what the, uh, Mr. Zines found is that when you took the younger couples, the, the pictures of them at or around their wedding, there was only a chance um, amount of times that those couples would be correctly paired with their spouse. It happened every once in a while, but no more than you would expect of people just kind of randomly picking pictures. But couples at their 25th year anniversary, they found a greater percentage of matching between these two couples that were married as these people said they look alike. No way to tell that they looked alike. No way to know that they were married, but they begin to look alike. So it is scientifically proven that you begin to look like your spouse after you've been married a while. Now, some of you are reconsidering some of your decisions in life right now, right? <laughs> like, like uh, I can live with them. I can put up with their, you know, how dirty the bathroom is. We can sleep in the same bed and I can listen to them snore, but uh, I don't know if I want to look like them, right? I don't know. For me personally, I've only got up to go if you see who I married. So, you know what? brownie points first thing in the morning right there so it is actually scientifically proven now this is the point of the message where I was going to get myself in trouble but I serve a good God who keeps us from doing stupid things I was going to ask Glenita Glenda how long have you and Larry been married 39 years and I was going to make this big point about how I've noticed they started to look together and then I was going to put a picture up of Larry and Glenita where I'd taken Glenita's hair and put it on Larry I was going to do the same thing to Danny except for I was going to take Danny's beard and put it on Denise I was going to do the same thing to my grandparents, except for I was going to take my grandpa's old bald, shiny head and put it on my grandma. But, but, grand, but God wanted me to live more than just today, so he decided I didn't have the skills to do that. But it's absolutely true that we begin to look like our spouses. And so Robert Zions, when he found this, he decided, I've got, there's, that's not possible. I've got to figure out scientifically how this happens, because there's not something magical about getting married where you start to look like each other. There's got to be some kind of a cause that makes this happen. And, and so we started to think through the possibilities of what kind of factors might um might possibly um, make people look alike. And the first thing he came up with is, you know, what if people are just attracted to people that look like them already? Like you kind of have this, this, this ideal of beauty based on your family, and so you marry people that kind of look like your family. And, and he found that there was no scientific basis for that, and so he decided it has to be something that they're both living through, and he found that most couples eat almost the exact same diet. Most couples eat the same things for supper every single night. So more than any other couple in the world, a married couple will have the same diet. And he said, well, maybe something about the food that they eat will make them look alike. Maybe it's where the fat deposits in their face go, as gross as that sounds for us, um, that makes
makes them look like. And scientifically, he couldn't prove that. And, and what they came up with after experimenting with this is, is that they found that couples begin to look alike because they begin to mimic each other's expressions. They begin to smile at the same emotions. <laughs> Some of you are looking at your spouses with the exact same expression on your face. You're proving my point. They begin to look alike when they have the same emotion. And the longer a couple is together, the more their emotions tend to hit at the same time. So as you get married, you tend to react in the same way with the same look on your face as your spouse does. Now, for those of you that are already married, you're stuck. I'm sorry. You just, you should have chose wiser. If you're young and unmarried, you might want to really think about what you're doing because you're going to start to look and act like your spouse after you've been married for a while. Now, what this teaches us, I promise I'm going somewhere with this, is what this teaches us is that this deep connection of marriage begins to transform our personalities. This deep bond that we share with another person allows us to start to merge our personalities into one. Does that surprise anybody? It always surprises me that science only proves what the Bible has already taught us. And the Bible says what? That two become one. This is just scientific proof of what the Bible has already taught us. That, that when, we are for, or when we are connected with someone on this level, that it begins to transform our personalities, begins to transform our habits, and we begin to become like our spouse. What they also found is that the couples who said that they had higher satisfaction in their, marriage, in their marriage, that they were happier together, that those couples were more likely to look like their spouses than couples who were not happy in their marriage. And so what this tells us is when you have a deep daily connection with another being, that you begin to absorb their attributes. And I guess that brings us to this question. If we have a deep daily connection with the supreme being, with God, would we not also begin to absorb some of his attributes into us? Now, now listen carefully. I'm not saying we're going to become God, but maybe parts of his personality and part of who he is begins to become part of who we are. And so by that train of thought, I guess what I'm getting at here is that we as Christians, if we are truly daily connected to God, shouldn't we see more love and more mercy and more grace in our personalities and in who we are and how we act? And if that's true, why do so many Christians lack that love and mercy and grace? Why do we have this, this cats and dogs problem we've been talking about for the past three weeks where, we're, where we attack people? Why, why do we fall into that habit of hatred again and again and again? Well, my argument would be this this morning, and I'm going to back it up biblically, is that if being around God and being closely connected to Him daily is going to transform us, our lack of being transformed means that we are not as connected to God as we should be. Does that make sense? And so that's how we get into this argument of cats and dogs. We've been in Galatians chapter 5. Paul is addressing Christians and he, he discusses the, uh, describes the relationship as biting and devouring one another. And Paul began last week to describe to us the difference between the flesh and the spirit. And the flesh is just simply me first, everybody else, and everything else second. And, and the spirit comes into us and Paul told us last week it fights against the spirit or the spirit and the flesh fight against each other. Paul's going to continue to this thought in Galatians chapter 5. You've got your Bibles open. We're going to read verses starting in verse 19 through 21. This is what Paul says. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. That word means evident or obvious. The works of the flesh are obvious, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lavishness, idolatry, 
witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, and drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in the time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to come back to that. So Paul starts off what he's talking about. He's been talking about the difference between the flesh part of us, the me first, everybody else second part of us, and the difference between what the Spirit puts in us. We're going to come back and read that here in a second. And he says, these things are manifest, or these things are evident. It means they're clearly seen. And I kind of get the idea that Paul's kind of going, do I really have to explain this to y'all? I mean, it's kind of obvious what the works of the flesh are. Uh, go outside and see, see the world around you. See everything that's going on. And all of these things that are normal in the world, that's the flesh. But that's not who we're supposed to be. We're not supposed to be normal. Some of you have already got that down, to be honest with you. Some of us already have that down. But we are not supposed to be normal like the world. And what was normal back then is becoming normal now. So our first take-home truth is this, is what is normal for the world is not normal for us. If you're a follower of Christ, what is normal for you is not normal in the rest of the world. We are supposed to be abnormal. We are supposed to be different. Now, if you look around and you see the world and you see the way that humans act naturally, this is not God's plan. This is not what God intended when he created the universe. This is not what God wants us. And if you see some of the things out of this list coming out of you, this is not God's work in you. At times we've been able to take things from this list and we've been able to come up with things like, oh, well, Brian, there's a holy anger that comes out of me. But here this says that fits of rage and, and emulations and wrath and strife, that those are all acts of the flesh, things that come out of me. Let's, let's see if we can break down this particular list of things. It starts off with a list of sexual sins. And I think that we can understand that's a basic tenement of being a follower of Christ is, is we hand our, handle our sexuality different than the world. If you don't believe me, turn on the TV and see what is normal to the world. It is literally disgusting. It's not what God had planned for us. and It's not what God wanted us to do. And as we become Christians, one of the first things that God begins to form in us is a different way of handling the way that we express our sexuality in the bond of a marriage only between a man and a woman. That's, that's what God intended, and that's what the Bible teaches. And so the first things on this list of sins or this, this list of um, flesh things is our sexual sins or the sexual sins of the world. And it goes on and it then begins to talk about idolatry and witchcraft. These are religious sins. These are sins that get in the way of how we worship God. Idolatry is worshiping anything besides God. We tend to think of idolatry as like a tiki pole somewhere with these, these carved gods on it that have names and, and people pray to them and worship them. And yes, that's idolatry, but idolatry is anything that we worship. And some of us worship the idol of money. Some of us worship the idol of success. Some of us worship the idol of our hobbies, the idol of sports, the idol of our image, the idol of our identity. And so we have these religious sins of idolatry, and then it talks about witchcraft, which I don't even really want to talk about. But that's getting into the spiritual realm on the wrong side. That's entering the occult, which is basically Satan's spiritual realm. And so God has this list of sexual sins. This is an act of the flesh. This list of religious sins. This is an act of the flesh. And then it gets to what it's going to be called interpersonal sins. These are the sins of how we treat other people. Hatred, wrath, jealousy, anger of every type. Interpersonal sins in the way that we treat other people. 
And what that tells me that in this list of we have sexual sins, which we can all agree are very important, and then we have right below that religious sins, don't worship any God but the true God, that's very important. God puts in level of importance right here in this list of things that are obviously very important to him, how we treat others. How we treat others is paramount, paramount to God. It means a lot to him. And I can prove that in more than just this scripture. If you go to the Ten Commandments, six of them have to do with how we treat the people around us. It's not just a friendly suggestion of, hey, maybe you should love others. Maybe you should be nice to other people. How we treat other people is extremely, extremely important to God. And I think that my argument in this whole cats and dogs series that we've been doing is that we as Christians have really, really been failing at treating people the way that God wants us to treat people and loving people who are different than us the way that God wants us to love people. I brought a picture for an example. Arby, would you pull this up for me? I was scrolling through the internet this week and, and I found this and I really prayed about it if I should bring this in. I just felt like God was saying, and this is a, a man at, a, at a, uh, some kind of a political rally. I don't know. He's got a t-shirt on that has a man throwing a cross in the trash basket. And if you can't read that sign, he says, if Jesus returns again, or if Jesus returns, kill him again. Uh, that's, that's, to us, that's kind of offensive, right? And first off, good luck with that. It didn't work out the first time somebody killed Jesus. But, but we kind of find that offensive of, of you're going to talk about my God that way and you're going to talk about my Jesus that way. And that's troubling to you and me that somebody would have that much hatred in them that that's, that's their opinion on life. If, if Jesus comes back, kill them again. But the truth of it is that's relatively normal. Our entire religion is built, our entire faith is built on the fact that somebody hated Jesus enough to kill him because without the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, there is no atonement for sin and the resurrection. And so our entire religion is built on the fact that somebody hated Jesus enough to kill him the first time. And it hasn't changed much since then. Early Christians were persecuted and killed in droves in the early church. And so while this is troubling, I really think that this is to be expected, that there's going to be people in the world that hate Jesus Christ. But what's more troubling to me is, is not that there are people in the world that hate Jesus Christ. It's how Christians are responding to people who hate Jesus Christ. This particular picture was floating around social media, and, and basically what the person put on there was, um, share this picture everywhere so that this scum has nowhere to hide, nowhere they can go, where people don't know who they are. What they were basically saying is, make sure that this person knows how much we hate them. Make sure that they can't go anywhere without people recognizing their face and telling them, I saw that picture of you and it disgusted me. And if you look through the comments of this, this, this particular picture had 32,000 shares on social media and thousands upon thousands of comments. And I want you to listen at people defending Christ at how they treated this man or how they talked to him. Cindy, random people that I just picked, says, boy, hell is going to be crowded. Rodney says, you can tell he's never been slapped. He still has that smirk on his sissy boy face. Sherry said, he has no soul disgusting. Alan calls him one sick bunch of human trash. Gail says, wait for him to get to hell. Rita says, wait till judgment day, punk. Joe said, I wish I could see him try to explain this at the gate. And there's thousands, thousands, and thousands more. And I left out the worst ones that had so many explicatives in them, I couldn't even try to edit them enough to say it in this building. Listen to me carefully. This is not what God called us to. 
We have people who claim to be Christians trying to defend the Prince of Peace with attacks. And that's not what God built us for, and that's not what God died for. He did not die on the cross for us to hate people who did not love him. Jesus died on the cross for everybody, those who love him, those who refuse him, those who hate him, and those who attack him. And we as a society, and we as Christians, we are failing at loving people. When you can pull up a picture like this, and most of the comments are talking about how ready people are for him to burn in hell. That is not what Christ called us for. And that's not the heart of a Christian. That's not the heart that Christ is supposed to be putting into us. But it's becoming the normal in Christian society that we think that we are doing something God, godly when we hate sinners, when they flaunt their sin in the streets. We hate atheists when they attack Christ. We, we've, we've religionized, I don't know if that's a word, religiousized political parties, and so we must hate the person of the opposite political party. We must hate people of other religions like Muslims. But all we're doing in this is we're acting like the world with this hatred in our hearts. Hating people that God loves and putting makeup on it and pretending it's pretty because we attach it to our religion and we attach it to our Christian values. You say, well, Brian, why are you bringing this up? Brian, I didn't make that picture. Brian, I didn't comment those ugly things. That's, that's not me, and, and you didn't do, or I didn't do that, so why are you bringing that up in this church? Well, I'm bringing that up in this church because it's becoming the norm in Christianity. It's becoming the norm in us that we think we must protect our values. We think we must protect our God by attacking other people. And we're not the first to do that. In the garden, before Jesus was taken to be crucified, Judas comes up to Jesus and he kisses him and he betrays him to the soldiers that this is the man that you should uh, arrest. This is the man that you should take and kill. This is the man that you should crucify. And as the guards move in to grab Jesus, there stands Peter and he pulls out a sword and he strikes out at the nearest guard, at the nearest soldier, and he cuts off his ear. That must have felt good. It must have been gratifying to have all of this angst in you and all of this worry and somebody's attacking your Jesus. It must have felt good to rip out that sword and, and lash out. Look at how Jesus responded to Peter, though. Peter probably thought he did a good thing. But Jesus, Jesus rebukes Peter. He says, Peter, put away your sword. Don't you know I don't need that? I, I, could, I could have prayed and there would have been more angels here than you could count to protect me. I don't need you to attack people to protect me. And then Jesus reaches over to the man who, Je who Peter just attacked. This man who's taking Jesus to be whipped savagely. This man who's going to cheer as they drive nails into Jesus' hands. This man who's going to go home and hug his family and say, we got him, we finally killed him. And Jesus loves him, reaches over, and heals him. See, when Peter's first reaction was to attack, Jesus' reaction was to love and to heal. And today, when our first reaction is to attack somebody, like this gentleman I had on this picture, Jesus' first reaction is, I want to love and heal them. That brings us to our second take-home truth, is that, that our desire to love should be stronger than our desire to attack. Our desire to love should be stronger than our desire to attack. Let me ask you a question. Are, are you more like Peter in that scenario where you feel like you would have wanted to lash out and attack? Are you more like Jesus that wanted to take somebody and heal them and love them? 
And I know it would be easy to make this argument, go, Brian, I, I don't think I would ever attack somebody with a sword. I think that's a little over the top. But, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of person that I put people in their place. When, when somebody comes to work and, and they're doing something wrong, you know, I just I let them have it. It's not the same as attacking somebody with a sword. Uh, Brian, all the people at my, at my work that aren't Christians, uh, they know to stay away from me because they know I'm not going to put up with their nonsense. I'll, I'll straighten them out in a heartbeat. But it's not the same as attacking them with a sword. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. The way some of us comment about politics on social media, I don't know if I would trust you with a sword at a political rally. <laughs> it could get bloody pretty quick. Uh, I don't know if that's a fair assessment or not, but I think that's, no, actually I do think that's fair. Did you know the Bible compares your tongue to a sword and a weapon? Not once and not twice, but a bunch of times. That the way we talk to and about people is described as striking them with a sword. And so when we disagree with someone, we take our, our sword and we stab them with hurtful words. When somebody doesn't understand Christ, like the picture that I just showed you, we take out our sword and we slash at them with a fit of rage. When somebody is different than us in some way, we cut out our sword or take out our sword and we cut them down with gossip and make sure that everybody else hates them like we do. It's becoming the norm in our society and this, this is not Christ in us. And we need to hear this, that when we attack and we hate and we have anger, that's not Christ working in our hearts. That's Satan influencing us. See, because Christ working in our hearts looks a little bit different. Let's, let's pick up this Bible here again and continue reading. Verse 22, Paul says, but. I love the word but in Scripture because it always, it draws a line in the sand. It's one of my favorite things that the, the Bible does. It gives us this comparison so you can see left or right, right or wrong. So here, here's the works of the flesh over here, and then we're going to draw a line. But here is the fruit of the Spirit. 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, that means patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such, there is no law. And so Paul here, he begins to talk about, you know, there's, there's the way that you want to act and there's the way that's normal for you to act. But the fruit of the Spirit, what, what grows in you when you're connected to Christ is a little bit different. Now, I love the fruit. I love thinking about the way fruit works and the way it's described as fruit. Fruit has three major things that makes it fruit. Number one, it's going to grow on a tree or on a vine. That's where fruit comes from. Number two, fruit is always desirable. It's always bright colors. It's always full of all these natural sugars. And number three is that, number three, sorry, number three is that fruit has seeds in it. That when you eat fruit, you spread the seeds. That, that's the way God designed fruit. And he describes these things that he's putting into us as fruit, as growing on a vine. He describes them as, as being um, one, something that people would desire, and it describes him as feeding, um, having seeds. You don't have to turn there, but this is Paul going back to something Jesus said in John chapter 15. In John 15, Jesus is walking with his disciples, and he walks past a vineyard, and he's always, always teaching them things. And so he uses this particular moment to give them a botany lesson. Listen to what he says in verse 4 of chapter 15 here. He says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye accept, except ye abide in me. Listen to what Jesus says. He said, look, um, there is this vine, 
and there's fruit, basic botany, right? And the fruit grows on the branches, but if you cut the branch off of the vine, it becomes a stick or a switch, depending on what reason you had to cut it off there, right? It becomes a stick. It doesn't grow any fruit when it's not connected to the vine. And then he continues on, and he explains why he's given them this lesson. He said, I am the vine, and you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. This is what Jesus says. He says, branches grow on vines, branches grow fruit, but not when they're not connected to the vine. And then Jesus throws this out there. He says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. And so what Jesus is saying to them is not so much you need to understand how this plant works. He's saying you need to understand how your relationship with me works. You need to be connected to me to grow fruit. You need to be connected to me to grow fruit. Otherwise, you cannot grow that fruit. And so with the fruit of the Spirit, we will not get that unless we are connected to God. And that's our next take-home truth, is that love, joy, and peace come from a connection with God. Love, joy, and peace, and all the other ones come from a connection with God. And so I guess our question for today is, is how connected are we with God? When we have this close connection to the vine, we're promised through the scripture that we will start to grow this particular fruit. Love, joy, and peace are just attributes of who God is. Doesn't the Bible say God is love? Have you ever experienced joy like what you get when you're connected to God? Have you ever needed peace and the only place you can find it is in Bible study or in prayer? These things come from a connection to God, not, not from being in the proximity of God, but from a connection. Just like married couples who are married for a long time, being connected to each other, begin to take on each other's personalities, begin to morph their personalities. When we are connected to God, we begin to take on parts of his personality. We begin to become a little bit more like him. Now imagine this. Many of us have family members we're very close to, right? Does everybody have those family members that you see once a year, once every two or three years? You guys got some of those? Yeah, I do too. And isn't it awkward when you see them for the first time? Like they come to a family reunion or you see them at the holidays and you sit down next to them and you have like all of the generic conversation. How's work going? How's family going? What you been doing? How many deer did you kill this year? Have you watched those hogs not win a football game all year? Right? You have those generic conversations, but after a point where you get past that kind of generic conversation, you get to a point like, I, I don't have anything else to say. I'm connected to you long ways, but I haven't seen you long enough to really have a relationship with you. For a lot of us, that's our connection with Christ, is we have a legitimate connection to him, but because we don't have that daily connection, because we're not by him all the time, because we don't make it a priority in our life, we kind of don't have a lot of common with them. It's a big difference than the married spouses who begin to kind of transform their personalities into each other. I think it's a little bit like this. The Bible, the Bible calls us all vessels, which means that, that we have the capacity to carry something or to hold something. This is a, a vase or a vase or whatever you want to call it. A vessel that has the ability to hold things and to carry things. This represents us. And for each of us, we have these different things that kind of make us who we are. It's, uh, uh, here's, here's my idolatry, my idol of money. That's part of Brian. Uh, here's my fits of rage and my anger and my wrath. Better put a couple more of those in there. 
Here's my hatred of people different than me. And for all of us, there's tons and tons and tons of these that, that kind of make us who we are. And so we have all of these acts of the flesh within us and part of us. The Bible calls Jesus, or Jesus calls himself the living water. And I want you to notice this here. I'm going to set that beside there. And I want you to remember the word proximity. Proximity. I'm going to come back to that. And so when we become Christians, when we become followers of Christ, we get a little bit of that living water. And at first, it doesn't make much of a difference. Like it's in there, there's, there's that connection, but not a lot changes, right? That's where a lot of us are with Christianity. Is We have a legitimate connection to Christ. We are legitimately Christians, but it's been just a little bit of a connection, and then we've kind of just kind of done our own thing and acted the way we wanted to. But what would happen if we have that daily connection with Christ? If the living water flowed into us every day? Day one, doesn't seem to make much difference. Day two, I don't see any change. What about if we had that daily connection every day for a month? Things begin to change. Every, every day for a year? What if our life became about nothing but following Christ? Notice how these acts of the flesh begin to pour out of us? They begin to fall out of us? That, that's what it's like when we truly come to know Christ and he pours into us daily and we have a daily connection with him. So he pours into us daily and as he pours into us, it's gonna start to push these, these ugly, nasty things, this, this hatred and this desire to fight and attack, it's gonna push it out of us. That's what we call growing fruit is when we become more like God, we have more of his attributes than our own ugly ones. That picture I showed you earlier, I'm thankful that there were some people on there who had had this experience. They'd had Christ obviously pouring into them and, and their reactions had changed and their reactions were different. And I want to share with you some of these positive comments. Tina said, forgive him, Father. Brittany said, this breaks my heart. I'll be praying for these people. Oh, my heart, I can't imagine living my life without God. Kimberly said, I'm praying for this man. And Deborah had this message for him. She said, it's too bad that you feel that the way that you do, but Jesus still loves you anyway. And so in the midst of all these angry, hurtful, attacking words, there's a small beam of light of people who had had the connection to Christ and they had allowed Christ to transform them. They, they had allowed the Spirit to pour into them and push all of the ugliness and the hatred out of them. As we end our services today, Brother Danny, don't trip on the ping pong balls. As we end our services today, I've got a question for you. Which one of those lists better describes you in your daily life? Is it the list of, of the fruit of the Spirit that when I go to work and when I go in the world, I'm full of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, long-suffering, all of that stuff? Or is it I'm full of anger and hatred and strife? I'm inviting you today, if you find that list of acts of the flesh in your own heart, and I'll be honest with you, it's not just you, it's me, it's all of us. If you find that, I'm inviting you to take some time during our response time to make that first connection with God today and to carry it on again tomorrow and the next day and have that daily connection and allow God to start to push that ugliness out of us. 
Maybe you've never made that connection to God and you're ready to take that first step and have that first little connection. I'd like to pray with you and talk with you on what it means to have faith in Christ and to accept Him as your Savior. Would you please stand?